Are fossil fuel companies community leaders, manipulative greenwashers, or a mix of both? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. For many black and brown neighborhoods, some of the biggest providers of jobs, tax dollars, and energy are also the biggest polluters. We started the Black Labor Initiative on Just Transition so that we really make sure that we are centering the voices of people who are standing to lose their livelihoods in this transition. Jackie Patterson is Director of Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP. She and many others are aware of how the necessary transition from fossil fuels to clean energy can leave behind many communities of color. But jobs in power plants and refineries pay well. What does it look like to make sure that you continue to have the benefits you need, the pension that you had, and making sure that you have the safety net for your family? Vian Trong is Director of Climate Justice for the Political Action Committee of former presidential candidate Tom Steyer. She's striving to make sure that jobs in the clean energy economy are able to attract workers accustomed to salaries offered by oil and gas companies. How do you retrain a workforce who's at the golden years, almost to the end of retirement? Where does that money come from for them? Derek Hawley is president of Reaching America, a nonprofit he founded that addresses issues facing black Americans, including a changing energy economy. You could have 600 people at a plant, whereas you know a solar farm, uh, after it's built, I mean, you essentially have a guy with a squeegee. Ivan Penn is energy reporter for the New York Times. Earlier this year, he wrote about Adora Nwese, the president of the NAACP's Florida Conference. In 2014, she wrote an op-ed in the Tallahassee Democrat opposing a rooftop solar rebate. Penn reported that several months later, the NAACP issued an invoice to Florida's largest utility for $50,000 some of the work that the NAACP has been doing in recent years highlighted the fact that the effects of climate change on Floridians were significant enough to reevaluate the Florida State Conference's support of the utility industry, which had been funding the state conference a great deal, um, tens of thousands of dollars, um, in general, what had been happening even during regulatory meetings was that the NAACP uh, would, would typically support the positions of the utility companies, um, generally arguing that some of the policies that uh, were pro-renewable, uh, pro-energy efficiency, uh, raised questions about the impact on communities of color, uh, on the disadvantaged, they seemed more benefits in the purview of the wealthy who could afford solar panels, who could afford uh, energy star appliances, who could afford to weatherize their homes, leaving the disadvantaged to pay the cost of the electric grid, uh, while those who could more afford it um, were reducing how much they had to pay to the utility. And so what we saw and what we reported uh, in this story uh, was Adora Nwese came forward and said, hey, you know, I realized after a study that uh, the NAACP had done that there were severe negative impacts on co the communities of color in Florida, uh, which obviously uh, you have significant concerns 
uh, in Florida between the hurricanes, sea level rise and flooding. And she recognized that they had to do something different. And she shared that story with us. Jackie Patterson, other chapters of the NAACP had similar uh, postures in 2017. I've been reported the Illinois chapter also opposed solar power and stronger energy efficiency measures in 2018. NAACP's top executive in California signed a letter opposing renewable energy. Paint the picture for us of this broader pattern of um, these communities of color in relation to the energy companies who often are very close to them. Yeah, thank you. In many cases, what we're finding as uh, with the NAACP leadership is a concern around the negative impacts of making this shift. As as Ivan said, the the uh, analysis around people having to pay higher bills for their electricity. Um, people losing jobs and so forth. And the NAACP, when knowing that this nation was built on regressive policies that disproportionately negatively impact us, there it was fairly easy for the fossil fuel companies to to really uh, paint a fairly myopic picture of the negative impacts that made made uh, our NAACP leaders say, okay, yet again, here's another situation where it's advantaging people with wealth at the expense of our communities. And so that is the fertile ground on which the seeds of doubt were, were planted that resulted in some of these, these uh, positions. Chevron's oil refinery in Richmond, California, is so old it was built before the surrounding city even existed. And for a long time, there wasn't much pushback from residents of this company town. But over the past two decades, the community has challenged Chevron in no small part due to the work of activist and longtime resident Andres Soto. Climate One's Andrew Stelzer spoke with Soto about growing up in the shadow of big oil. Andres Soto was a baby when his family moved from Berkeley to Richmond, California in the late 1950s. At that time, Chevron's oil refinery had already been in operation for over five decades. Soto says it was an unquestioned part of the landscape. As a child, no one ever spoke about not having them. No one ever spoke about trying to control their pollution. People weren't connecting that with health outcomes and health experiences. And, you know, I went to Richmond High School where the mascot was the Oilers. You know, we had an oil can guy on the side of the football field. And then I began to understand the role of Chevron in the politics and the economy of the community. In my family, all of us, my parents, my siblings, we've all gotten adult onset psoriasis. I had a brother who died of brain cancer a month before his third birthday when I was seven years old. I'm the oldest. My other brother got cancer of his tongue when he was in his 30s. So, you know, we can't prove in court it was Chevron, but I grew up my entire childhood being about two miles downwind from the refinery with all those experiences prior to regulations to clean it up. In 2004, Soto ran for Richmond City Council as one of the founders of a new group called the Richmond Progressive Alliance. RPA's candidates were fierce critics of the pollution caused by Chevron's oil refinery. Although Soto narrowly lost, the RPA won two other local races, and Chevron began funding the RPA's opponents. And then there was the notorious 2014 election where they spent three and a half million dollars in that election and all their candidates lost. 
after that, they went back to the drawing board and started doing a softer approach. And so they've been making contributions to more community organizations and buying their loyalty, you know, for their projects. They started their own online news service and they have a permanent news service called the Richmond Standard and they choose the content. So it's, you know, a propaganda organ for them. Soto's ultimate goal is the decommissioning of the Chevron refinery. And he says other energy producing communities across the country should try and develop economic transition plans so that they can one day do the same. Having a large industrial facility in your community, whether it's an oil refinery or a steel mill or a smelter or any you know, cement plant, it is going to bring revenue. But there has to be a different way of evaluating cost benefit. When you start adding up all those chips, the cost of health care, the loss of productivity, the loss of life expectancy, increased poverty of people who grow up along the fence line of these facilities versus the amount of income that is brought in through taxation, it then starts to become a different kind of equation. It's just no longer good enough to look at it from dollars and cents. We also need to look at it from the health of the planet. That was Andre Soto, an organizer with the Richmond, California branch of Communities for a Better Environment. Derek Hawley, I'd like to have your response there to his comments about balancing the economic and human health benefits of large energy facilities. Well, a couple of things. One, uh, I think it's very unfortunate, the things that happened to him and his family. Um, and I also think it's unfortunate that they are not able to prove or associate Chevron with whatever it was that took place with his family. Um, one of the issues that, you know, Greg, that we work on the most is, is energy poverty. Energy poverty occurs when individuals aren't able to afford just basic heating and electric needs. And um, I think the technology over the years has changed a lot. I think he said it's been five decades since that power plant was built or was built prior to the community being, being built, who knows what went into that facility prior to, uh, you know, when it, was, when it was first built. Again, the technology has changed a lot. And it probably has a lot of the old systems in place and, and we still don't know the effects of it. But I think there's a balance that we have to have in terms of our approach towards energy and development and being good stewards of the environment. And I would point to um, Port Fouchon down in Louisiana. I had an opportunity to visit Port Fouchon, Louisiana a couple of years ago. And this is where they have all the onshore operations for all the offshore operations that take place for BP, Shell, all the big oil companies. And uh, it's just interesting because people travel from around the world to study the Gulf because it's so rich in fish and wildlife. And I think again, and I'm a licensed captain. I, I love the water took my boat from Maryland to Florida, and I'm a, I, I'm a true steward of the environment. But I think we've got to find that balance between our energy development, production, and keeping the environment safe. Vientrom, your take on you know what Andre Soto was talking about in terms of the uh, the the softer approach that Chevron has taken in, in Richmond. You know, there's a well-told story about handing out backpacks for kids to go to school and and being well received by the company there. Perhaps in some ways uh, better than some of the environmental groups. Right, and you know, as you said earlier, Richmond's refinery has been there for a long time, and many people went there to get the jobs. 
and it was considered a company town. And as part of their work in building their communities, they were doing some of the you know work with building relationships, including giving out these backpacks. Um, what we haven't seen is the corollary with a lot of climate groups. They're coming in there and they're saying these are things that are bad for your environment. They're bad for your life and longevity. And that's true. And many people in the communities know that. There just isn't an alternative. So what we often do is what we have not learned to do well is to go from protest to actually creating solutions. How do we offer an alternative? How do we actually invest in the communities to actually give and create more jobs? How do we build the inroads? You know, when we hear, hear about um, organizations that respond against the increase in utility costs because it will actually hurt the low-income uh, ratepayers even more, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. You know, we're in a place in America right now where most families don't have $500 in their savings account before COVID. And now when you look at what's happening, you know, the evisceration of our healthcare systems, the lack of ability for people to have their own social safety net. We don't have retirement savings in many of our uh, communities. The cost of living in California is so high. We're seeing cities across the street from where we live. And so when you talk about increasing the cost of energy, which is fundamental for survival, especially during these days, of course, it makes sense for us to respond in kind. What I would say, though, is that it shouldn't be seen as a false dichotomy. It shouldn't be either or. What the organizations should have done in the first place is to go to the communities to discuss what are the right solutions and how do we work together to actually create a better solution. Um, and had they done that, they would have realized that there is a better way to actually be more nuanced in creating policies, which I think is what we're learning to do now. So um, I'm glad that now we're beginning to talk about these incidences and case studies where we begin to create an option for us to actually build better relationships, to actually work together with stakeholders so that we're not making a false choice between our environment and our economy. Jackie Patterson, so when economies like Richmond, California try to diversify, um, oftentimes there's questions of displacement or gentrification that are very painful when a community like Richmond tries to diversify away from just the oil refinery and they have a, a big university research center, some a ferry terminal with some housing. Then the community's like, hey, we're getting priced out of here. So how do they grow out of a, you know, diversify and grow out without hurting the people who were there? Yes, as you can imagine, it's one of many communities that are facing the same challenges. And one of the actually, if, if our annual convention had moved forward um, this year, although it's happening a, a little bit later, our workshop was going to focus on this whole issue of gentrification, displacement, and how do we grow and have community um, improvement without community displacement. And so we have been putting together a suite of of ordinances that could be put in place to help mitigate against the displacement that happens and based on some of the some of the practices where people have been successful in doing community improvement without displacing communities so we're still digging deep on that research so that we can really put forward those models but it is possible to do but then the important thing is making sure the communities are in the driver's seat so that the improvement isn't something that happens to them and therefore the displacement being more likely if they're driving it and and know what measures they can put in place to to uh, to prevent displacement, then we'll, we'll most likely kind of have a win-win situation. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the dirty energy dilemma. Coming up, navigating the power dynamics on both sides of the energy divide. The big question is, you know, where's the grown-up in the room that should be the regulators and the government to help 
the consumer to navigate the push by these different industries that are trying to win their dollars. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about how fossil fuel companies relate to communities near their refineries and power plants. My guests are Derek Hawley, president and founder of Reaching America, Jackie Patterson, director of environmental and climate justice at the NAACP, Ivan Penn, energy reporter with The New York Times, and Vien Trong, director of climate justice for the political action committee run by Tom Steyer, a climate activist and former Democratic presidential candidate. The 2016 Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton, offered a $30 billion plan to help co-workers that was focused on retraining, an idea invoked frequently in the clean energy transition. I asked Vien, who's been involved in green jobs for more than a decade, whether that retraining ever really happens. Does it really happen? Eh, sure, in different pockets and specificity. I think what I would look back at at the $30 billion it needed to be unpacked about where was the money going to be spent and how this transition was going to work with a lot more specificity needed and making sure that we're working with people who are in those industries to look at what is a real rational plan that's not very abstract, that's looking at, you know, for folks who are in the older tiers ready to retire, what does that look like for the transition, right? What does it look like to make sure that you continue to have the benefits you need, the pension that you had, and making sure that you have the safety net for your family. And oftentimes, you know, in the uh, previously there was a, a single person household that's carrying the weight, the economic weight of the whole family on this one income and making sure that the family is protected. And if people are kind of in the middle tier, how do we make sure that they have the right skill set? What kind of industries do they have in the nearby vicinity that they can actually get connected to with the with a reasonably uh, level amount of wages and the same kind of corresponding benefits? And then for the younger folks, how do we make sure that we're continuing to get them kind of directed at cleaner jobs or better jobs? And how do we make sure that the whole of the community actually has other options and economic diversity for other places to work besides just your fossil fuel industries? And that's where I think that 30 billion could have been better unpacked and, and kind of brought in folks who are, are proximate to the problem or proximate to what's going on to help design the solutions. And I think that's the learning lesson that we have here. How do we make sure that, you know, whether you're working at the very local level or at the federal level, that we don't do things in a vacuum or in silos? We are now more interconnected than ever before. We have to start bringing in folks to help make sure that we're creating solutions that make sense for everybody, right? You can't create solutions. I mean, for a long time, um, you know, my family's refugee folks from Vietnam, for a long time, policy is done to people and not with people. And now we're at a place where we understand that we have to make sure that we are um, not only creating a seat at the table for people who are proximate to the problem, but bring the table to the community that you're trying to create policies that actually affects and make sure that they're co-creating the solutions with us, to, you know, with the policymakers, with the different folks who are actually helping to shape the future so that we can design something that makes sense with all the stakeholders involved. Ivan Penn, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, this jobs transition. People hear about that lie, you know, what are coal miners going to do? But the jobs in clean energy are very different types of jobs, often in a very different place. That That's right. Uh, and you're, you're talking about a significant difference in, in, in pay, um, where you are going from nuclear jobs 
um, which are obviously very high paying jobs. Uh, a reactor, you could have 600 people uh, at, a, at a plant, whereas you know, a solar farm uh, after it's built, uh, I mean, you essentially have a guy with a squeegee. Um, and so, I mean, th those, are, those are real issues. You have a lot of jobs created um, in the development and installation of solar and wind, uh, but you don't have as many uh, as, as the fossil fuel uh, and, and other big box power plants. Um, there is a lot of training that, that companies uh, have been providing in this transition. But I uh, you know, recently wrote a story about some of the competition between renewables and natural gas now. And there was a, uh, a power plant closed in uh, North Dakota, uh, Underwood, North Dakota, and the utility was switching to uh, wind and, and, and natural gas from coal. That is a devastating decision to the small town there uh, that depended on not only the power plant, but also the coal mine that supplied that power plant. And now that town is wondering, well, what are we going to do? And the other nearby small towns. So, you know, there are some real issues. And, and the question is, uh, how does the, the country navigate the transition uh, that increasingly all parties are embracing in order to deal with climate change? Jackie Patterson, I was an internet reporter in the early days of the internet, and the thinking then was that it was going to democratize information, that there were going to be so many sources of information, lots of competition, this um, sort of moving away from centralization of you know IBM and, and mainframe computers. Now we have a situation where a handful of large companies dominate the internet. That democratization didn't happen. And I hear similar, that echoes for me some of the conversations about distributed power is going to be more democratic and people, you can, you know, give power to the people from their rooftops. I'd like to hear your thoughts on kind of the concentration and distribution of power as we move from a fossil economy to a cleaner economy. We might have a replay of the same kind of same story. Yeah, that is um, kind of to the some of the points that were being made before. We started this initiative called the Black Labor Initiative on Just Transition so that we really make sure that we are centering the voices of people who are standing to lose um, their livelihoods in this in this transition. And in that conversation with the, with the Black Labor um, folks in the lead, We've been talking about how currently the centralized power has resulted in circumstances such as uh, the 76,000 um, coal miners that have lost their lives since 1968, while the National Mining Association, which consisted of the very companies that employed them, fought against the regulations to, to be able to protect them from the coal mine dust that, that is tied to the black lung disease that, that, that took their lives and that has and that's in counting. And so we've talked about how not only um, is the lobbying against uh, uh, those types of regulations, but it's also a, a number of these fossil fuel companies are paying into groups like ALEC that, um, that push forward on everything from school and prison privatization to water privatization to even voter suppression laws. And so 
that centralization of power and the lack of real people engagement in that agenda and 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 for our for our communities it's at the expense of the the uh well-being of our communities points to us for the need of of, of decentralizing the the wealth and the power that's driving that machine it, and and in the context of the conversation with the black labor initiative it's really talking about how do we what are the what are the possibilities not just thinking of trading a job in, in doing coal or oil and gas for another energy job or even, but what are the vast possibilities in the new economy that we're trying to, to, to transition to? And so, and in each of, of the sectors of this new economy, we are, uh, we have a lot of folks who are pushing for decentralization because whether it's people getting their electricity shut off for non-payment while the company that's, you know, responsible for it is, has a CEO making $9.8 million a year and you're cutting somebody off for $60 to the, to literally at the cost of their lives. Our report, Lights Out in the Cold, talked about people who were burning candles for electricity after having their, I mean, for light after having their electricity cut off and burn down their houses. So they literally paid the price of poverty with their lives. And so to this point around energy poverty, we are really looking at and how, how do we actually really uh, meaningfully and systemically relieve um, energy poverty um, that really does put the, the power in both senses in the hands of the people. So if you're just joining us on Climate One, we're talking about uh, communities of color and fossil fuels in America with Jackie Patterson, Director of the Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP, Derek Colley, President of Reaching America, Ivan Penn, Energy Reporter with the New York Times, and Van Trung, Director of Climate Justice with the Tom Steyer PAC. Derek Colley, your grandfather was a coal miner, um, and a lot of your writings, uh, you, you, you cite the Heritage Foundation as an authoritative source. I wonder what you think about the prospect of coal in America. Is it going to come back, as Donald Trump claims? No, I don't think uh, there's going to be a comeback with the coal. I just don't. Um, for a couple of different reasons. One, the coal, I've watched it because my grandfather was a black coal miner in southwest Virginia. Right now, coal represents about 28, 29% of our entire energy mix. And I've seen it decline over the years. I, when I started this thing reaching America about five or six years ago, coal was up like 34, 35%. And just in five, six years, it's gone down to 29, 28%. And I think we're going to continue to see that decrease in coal for one reason. One, because natural gas is cleaner, it's more efficient, we have it in abundance. And so, while I think coal will continue to decrease in terms of our, our, our electric mix and energy supply goes, I think coal will always be, around, always be around because we still need it for different materials, i.e. windmills, solar panels, and that kind of thing that will still keep coal in place, but not to the level where it is right now. But I want to just also, if I could add, just with the, with the loss of the jobs that we were just talking about, I had the opportunity to go back to Southwest Virginia and visit where my grandfather was a coal miner. And that area still 50 years later has never rebounded. And you talk about poverty in the Appalachia, it is so different from that in an urban city. Like I said, I couldn't, I lost count of the number of homes whose the roofs were damaged and they just had a blue tarp on the top of it with tires holding it down because they couldn't afford to get their roofs fixed. And poverty, like I said, just runs rampant in Appalachia. It's because of loss, the loss of the, uh, the coal mines there. And they, they tried to replace some of those jobs 
by opening prisons. Well, that's not the answer either, either. But it's going to be very difficult as we continue with some of these proposals that are being put forth right now that are trying to eliminate oil and gas jobs. I just wonder, as uh, Ben was saying, how do you retrain a workforce who's at the golden years, almost to the end of retirement? Where does that money come from for them? And so that's why I just say we just need to hold on, pump our brakes as we transition to renewables. Just make sure that everyone is taken care of in our effort as we continue to do that. As we continue our conversation about communities of color and fossil fuel facilities around America, we're going to go to our lightning round on Climate One. I'm going to ask each of you a true or false question. Just one word uh, first, you know, true or false, and then we'll go to a association. Uh, so beginning with Derek Holly, true or false, cafe standards for American cars and trucks were flat for nearly 25 years from 1985 to 2009 when President Obama proposed a 5% annual increase. True or false? True. Flat for 25 years. Uh, true or false? <laughs> Jacqueline Patterson, um, fossil fuels have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Hundreds of millions. False. <laughs> Derek Holly, true or false? Fossil fuel companies place refineries and power plants in neighborhoods populated by people of color. I would say in the past, yes, true, absolutely. Um, also, follow up, true or false, because those people have less political power. Absolutely, I would say yes, true. Ivan Penn, true or false, Wall Street prefers solar energy on residential rooftops rather than industrial installations. Uh, false. Vientrung, true or false, climate philanthropy in this country is dominated by a handful of billionaire white men named such as Bloomberg, Steyer, Simons, Grantham, and others. Quasi-true. There's so many. <laughs> Here's why. I mean, I work, I work for one of those guys. Um, All right. There are so many more foundations and family foundations and people that are coming up and actually doing the work. And so... That misses the amazing work that so many other people are actually doing. So there's some folks in the, in the um, getting a lot of attention, but it actually is being done by a bunch of other folks. Once again, yeah, the, the white guys get the attention. Uh, okay, true or false, Ivan Penn. Um, Duke Energy compelled one Florida homeowner to buy a million-dollar insurance policy because it said the solar panels on his home could harm the electric grid. That would be true. <laughs> Vientrung, true or false, Wall Street likes cap and trade because they can game it. True. Derek Holly, uh, true or false, you have received direct or indirect funding from fossil fuel interests. Mm, true. This is an association. I'm just going to mention something and uh, ask you to think of the first thing that pops in your mind off the top of your head with reckless abandon. Um, Jackie Patterson, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say green jobs? Green washing. <laughs> also, Jackie Patterson, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's position on climate change policy? I would say hopefully evolving. Ivan Penn, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Florida power and light? Uh, influential. 
Also, Ivan Penn, what's the first thing that comes to mind, top of mind, when I say Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? Uh, current governor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dodge. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> uh, Vien Trong, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say all lives matter? Black lives matter. Also, Vien Trung, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Mount Rushmore? Indigenous rights first. Derek Holly, first things that comes to mind when I say voter fraud? The uh, November. I think of November, the election. Last one, uh, Derek Holly, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Donald Trump? Woo! <laughs> That's what comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> listening to a conversation about race, power, and fossil fuels. This is Climate One. Coming up, connecting COVID, climate, and the wider economy. Most of these small businesses are actually led by people of color. Most of them actually hire from the community, actually are reinvesting back into the economy. So when we're not actually creating a safeguard for these industries, we're actually going to see an even bigger gap between the have and the have-nots. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about energy and power in communities of color with Jackie Patterson, Director of Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP, Derek Hawley, President and Founder of Reaching America, Vien Trong, Director of Climate Justice for Tom Steyer's PAC, and Ivan Penn, Energy Reporter with the New York Times. The fossil fuel industry is complex, but power is highly concentrated. For gasoline and jet fuel, a small number of oil companies dominate. For electricity, most people have little choice but to buy from a local monopoly. I asked Ivan Penn if there's a similar concentration of power among clean energy companies. Obviously, when you have a younger uh, industry, so not the same level of influence, um, you do have a consolidation of power through the associations. On the solar side, the major one is the Solar Energy Industries Association. And that is uh, that that's made up of all of the solar players. So um, so you have a mix there where uh, it's the utilities, it's um, those who get it installed on in the industrial and commercial side. And then there's the rooftop uh, solar businesses that are installing in residences and, and all. Uh, so that becomes a significant voice because of the the numbers of players that uh, are working together. The Wind Association, um, you know, is a significant voice with the, all of the onshore and now the developing uh, offshore wind. Uh, and of course, the growing storage industry. And when you combine those voices together, you know, it becomes a, a significant block. But the dynamics are very, very different for the renewables and the voice of the consumer. Um, as opposed to the energy industry, which has uh, organizations that are are unified nationally uh, and even internationally, and they have a narrative and a script that the renewable side is beginning to develop. Um, the consumers are are much more fragmented and don't have the same kind of voice. Uh, that 
that either one of these parties do and are trying to navigate the push and the lobbying from each one of these industries. And, and at the end of the day, the big question is, uh, you know, where's the grown up in the room that should be the regulators and the government to, to help the consumer to navigate the push, especially in a capitalist society, by these different industries that are trying to win their dollars. And so even though you have the bigger voice of the oil, natural gas, um, uh, utility industries versus the growing renewable sector, the masses, though, are, uh, you know, caught in this place of not having the kind of voice that they need so that they can make informed decisions about both their government and their lives. Derek Carley, I think you you seem to be right of center politically. You know, your thought on on where government um, is in terms of regulating industry and uh, en- the energy industry in this country, because I know a lot of conservatives who don't like the idea of monopolies. They want market competition. Your thoughts on sort of the power structure of energy and how the government's um, overseeing that sector? Well, I think um, the, the the general public, they don't have a voice. And I think a lot of times they are misled by both sides. And I'd say that, you know, the oil and gas, as I shared with you, I think they do need to do a better job of informing the public of what they do, the uses of fossil fuels, and et cetera. Meanwhile, from where I sit, the environmental groups, i.e. the Sierra Club, they are bombarding people, telling people that it's so bad. Natural gas is bad. Everything, fossil fuels is bad. Keep it in the ground. Don't pull it up. All those kinds of things. So people right now are just like, oh, my God. And, it, and it's, it's coming down to who they even vote for in the November election. Is it going to be the new Green Deal with Joe Biden or is it going to be fossil fuels with President Trump? And the thing about it is again, it's misleading to people because on the side with Joe Biden, I know most of those people, black people in particular, are not in the market to buy an electric vehicle. But meanwhile, with that policy, the policy they're putting out, and with the direction of, of, of a Joe Biden, you're going to have to do that. And I don't think people really, really understand when it comes to policy and the politics involved when it comes to energy, because both the, the left, the right, the environmental groups, the oil and gas industry are just throwing so much at people. And it just, it's just hard to decipher what's, what's best for them. Jackie, I'd like to go to you. And you have a pamphlet from the NAACP, Top 10 Manipulation Tactics of fossil fuel companies, and particularly there's three of them there about exaggerating the level of job creation, pacifier co-opt community leaders, and praising false solutions. Tell us a little bit about some of those tactics that you see on the part of fossil fuel companies. Sure. Uh, so whether it's the, the Keystone pipeline or it is even some of the other coal plants that are being built in communities or otherwise that often there will be promise of of jobs, but not really the kind of specificity that these are only construction jobs that are only going to last so long, or there's going to be jobs coming into the community, but we're also bringing people who already have those jobs into the community. So those are the kind of things that we're finding in different um, places where the the promises don't actually match the the the, the reality. So then in terms of the, uh, attempting to pacify or co-op communities, it is definitely whether it's uh, the so it's one thing there uh, sometimes uh, some of the companies will say that they're 
just wanting to be a good neighbor in terms of providing financial support to communities, which is how some of our communities say, oh, great, they want to be a good neighbor. And so that's that's great. We'll take that. And then there is the times like um, President Wazy talked about and others, how they will uh, they will tie that those financial contributions to the community supporting their position very explicitly. And in the report, we talked about the St. Louis NAACP uh, talked about how they were receiving funds every year. And then one year they said, oh, um, we didn't get our check this year for our Freedom Fund banquet. We're just, you know, checking up just to make sure it didn't get lost in the mail or something. And they said, oh, you know, we give money. Yes, we give money to our friends. But your people went and testified at the EPA um, hearing on mercury and air toxics. Therefore, you are no longer in the friend category. So the check was not indeed lost in the mail. It never was sent out. And so these are the kind of things where it's starting to be revealed, the basis of some of these relationships. And so. Ivan Penn, you re- you've recited a uh, study that said from 2013 to 2017, 10 of the country's largest utilities gave out about a billion dollars in donations. Where did that money go? What did the companies get for those donations to community and nonprofits? Well, I mean, it, it's a variety of places. And uh, so everything from uh, your your nonprofit organizations, NAACP, the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Clubs, um, you know, it's a, it, it, it gets and, and arts events, um, which are we're, uh, getting their names put on performing arts centers and parks. And um, and I, I remember a um, state senator in Florida said uh, uh, that they saw uh, in, in that particular case, Duke Energy as just a, a good public citizen to the state of Florida and, and didn't realize uh, some, of the, uh, some of the issues that, that were there because uh, there was a particular problem uh, with a broken uh, nuclear plant that ended up costing consumers um, hundreds of millions uh, of dollars. And, they were charging in advance for another plant and um and that cost consumers a billion and a half um and and so when when the senator looked at it all he was like well you know because of all the things that they do in in the community um you know we saw them as a good corporate citizen and and then it makes it difficult for i mean who's going to come to a public hearing and speak out against the entity, whichever one it is, whether it's a utility, an oil company, um, natural gas company, that is basically funding their entire budget, essentially. I mean, because it doesn't have to be a whole lot of money for a nonprofit to 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 have their entire budget funded, um, and then it's a drop in the bucket for you know, corporations of these, uh, the sizes of the utilities and oil companies, uh, it makes it difficult uh, for anyone to, to, to speak out against the, the hand that's feeding them. Bien Trung, I want to talk about, we're talking about the energy transition. We have to talk about unions, uh, often thought as, you know, support on the left, uh, but they support a lot of the pipelines that are proposed around the country, a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure. Where are unions on this transition? Are they also kind of holding to those well-paying 
fossil fuel jobs because a lot of renewable energy jobs are not unionized. Yeah, I, I think what we want to unpack first is not to conflate the jobs with the with their kind of um, position on climate. Because really, when they're looking at what these projects are, they're looking at what the jobs and the job quality tied around these projects are. And I want to maybe dig a little bit dig deeper on that, because what we know and maybe too often conflate is the interconnections between cheap labor and the rising CO2 emissions, right? It's the same logic that is driving for maximum profit that is using kind of um, unsavory uh, tactics from paying people to uh, testify, testify in support of projects to maximizing profit by any means necessary, including making sure that they're, um, you know, working laborers um, for pennies, burning up coal, you know, it, blowing up mountaintops to get to the coal. It's the underlying logic of by any means necessary, we're going to get our profits. We're going to get these projects moving forward. And for us, when we're doing this work, we have to make sure we're looking at the interconnections of investing in communities, investing in good jobs, and making sure that we're, you know, that we're not sacrificing people in lieu of uh, making the jobs real. That highlights a responsibility for us then to make sure that we're actually not only doubling down and creating the clean energy jobs, but making sure that those jobs are actually as good and pays good wages, that they actually reflect the standard of living and the standard of pay that we have to get people to, that we create wraparound benefits around that, that we have to make sure that, that there's a pipeline into those good jobs for communities across the board. Jackie Passon, I feel like as we get to the end here, I want to make sure that we connect uh, the COVID uh, vulnerability of, of we know that uh, African Americans have higher incidence of asthma. They're more vulnerable to COVID. They're likely to be living in these fence line communities. So how is that impacting? I want to make sure we we hit that. Don't overlook yeah, that. Yeah. No. So many ways. One, we certainly see have seen the Harvard study that caught the ties. PM 2.5, which is particulate matter, um, to COVID, says that 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 indicates that COVID actually rides on these two point these particulate matter particles. And so we, and we know that those, uh, the particulate matter is much higher in black communities in particular from sources, including uh, the, any type of burning, whether, you know, combustion, whether it's through coal plants or through car engines or through burning of incinerators and, and so forth. So that is certainly there. Plus the, as you said, the his, the history of having compromised lung capacity from, ha from being near, near the way new, near roadway air pollution and, and so forth and so on means that we're more vulnerable to um, COVID-19, which, uh, which impacts the lungs. So all those different ways. And then on top of it all, if we are less mobile in terms of having individual cars, then in order to, whether it's get to places to get food or, or, or do the essential work because we're more likely to be essential workers, it means that we're the ones who are getting on these buses where there's more likely to be transmission. Time and time again, you, talk, you hear people talk about how it's so much safer riding in your individual cars, and many of us don't even have that choice. Um, and so there's so many intersections there. So I'll stop there. You know, I think it's really important when we see the protests that are happening now across the country, it makes so much sense to me. That anger is justified. We are facing the uh, economic injustice, the racial injustice, the environmental injustice that this pandemic has really revealed to this country, right? We're seeing the breakdown of our institutions that are supposed to keep us safe from hospitals to energy to housing. Those things are crumbling. We're seeing people who 
with the end of the um, moratorium on evictions, we're seeing people being displaced in mass. And on top of it all, we're seeing the PPP funds and loans that are supposed to going to help protect people, the emergency um, support. It's going to actually the wealthier folks, right? You know, Jared Kushner's friends got a ton of PPP loans. The folks who did not get the loans, though, 90% of small businesses did not get PPP loans. And when you look in California alone, most of the small um, restaurants, most of the nail salons, most of the service industries, most of these small businesses are actually led by people of color. Most of them actually hired from the community, actually are being or um, reinvesting back into the economy. So when we're not actually creating a safeguard for these industries, we're actually going to see an even bigger gap between the have and the have nots. And then to make that even worse, we're looking at the digital divide where students are now being um, asked to learn remotely, when a lot of families don't even have Wi-Fi or laptops at home. And so we're going to see this wealth inequality continue to get even worse if we don't do something about it. So I say, we got to take a look now and making sure that this reveal that we've seen with the pandemic actually forces us to focus on investing in the communities that are the front lines, that are in the sacrifice zones, and make those our sacred work right now. Amen. Derek, Ali, I saw you nodding yes to a lot of that. Yeah, I, I was just saying amen to Ben. She said it all. And so we, she, she, she said it all. And we have to look at right now what COVID has done to this country. It has, in many ways, pulled back the covers on all of our dirty secrets and things that are wrong in this country. And I think if any, if, in order for us to pull ourselves out right now, we're going to have to all come together. Can't be no left, can't be no right, can't be no white and black. This is an American issue right now. If you look at, if you look at what's going on, it, it, it would be hard to say that uh, there is unity right now in this country. And I think we're going to have to get past this divide that exists before we can pull ourselves out of this situation that we're in right now. We've been talking about the dirty energy dilemma for communities of color with Derek Holly, president and founder of Reaching America, Jackie Patterson, director of environmental and climate justice at the NAACP, Ivan Penn, energy reporter with the New York Times, and Vien Trong, director of climate justice for Tom Steyer's PAC. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help more people find us. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.